Hello, everyone. It's good to be here. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. I wonder what those words mean for you tonight. For most of my early life on this earth, those words meant nothing, but now they mean everything. I'd like to share with you the reason why. We're thinking about the image of God, what picture of God we hold in our mind's eye. We'll all have some kind of picture of God. Could we have this slide, please? We might picture God as a benevolent Jesus figure, an angry autocrat, or as a bearded guy on a cloud. Think about your image of God for a moment, but only for a moment, or else I'll have lost your attention in record time. As a child, I believed that God was blind. That was his main characteristic for me. Later, I understood the reasons for this. Studies have been done which show that children between the ages of three and six, even if they have no contact with Christians or the church, develop an understanding of this great other, something out there much bigger than themselves. Faith develops as naturally as wisdom teeth, but our picture of God can then be heavily influenced changed by our personal experiences, particularly the kind of relationships that we have with those around us. A.W. Tozer wrote this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why is that? Because it influences everything else for instance, people who have a very negative view of God tend to have a negative view of themselves. I'm thankful that my mother was loving, but my childhood home was completely dominated by my father, who was given to the most sudden, violent outbursts. No one outside the home knew about that. In the wider community, he carefully cultivated the image of a caring husband and father, bravely bearing up under the disability of being blind himself. That phrase, no one knows what goes on behind closed doors, was never more apt. And I know there will be people here tonight for whom that also rings true. As a young child growing up in Northern Ireland, every Sunday I was packed off to the local Methodist Sunday School. I quite liked the concept of a loving God. The dedicated teachers there helped me to build up a picture of a being who was very kindly disposed towards me. 
But at an early age, I came to the conclusion, God must be blind too. And looking back, I can see this was a protective mechanism. It was easier to believe that God was blind than to believe God could see some of the bad things happening to me, but was choosing not to do anything about it. When I was 18, my father died suddenly. In fact, he dropped to the floor right in front of me and couldn't be revived. And for years, I lived with terrible guilt because I had been praying the violence would stop. Maybe God had seen after all, I feared. The following 10 years saw my marriage to a man 20 years older than me, looking for a father figure, some said. Although Ray was nothing like my father, he was kind and patient, especially when having to cope with my mood swings and periods of depression. Times when I would lock myself in the bathroom and weep, or take ages to fill up a kettle because my OCD dictated if any water touched the outside surface, I'd have to start all over again. I was good at hiding this in company. Ray was outgoing and sociable, and he urged me to take up sports like table tennis, which gave me an outlet. He was my buffer against a world which felt so scary at times. I didn't even have the confidence to drive more than 10 miles from our home. And I just couldn't imagine managing life without him. God was still in the picture. He had to be once Ray began training as a Baptist local preacher and we started regularly attending church. But my picture of God had not altered much. It was this confused muddle of believing, yes, God was there somewhere, but he had better things to do than be interested in me. It was never a two-way relationship. And as Ray immersed himself in theological tomes, scribbling away at sermons, he said he had no problem with the concept of God, but the whole idea of Jesus being both human and divine, dying on a cross to save the world, he had to confess he wasn't totally convinced. But he even tried to persuade me to join in. Why don't you try this, he said. You could be a preacher. My reply, there is no way on this earth I am ever going to do that. Words I've eaten many, many times. But everything changed when in the seventh year of our married life, Ray was diagnosed with terminal bladder cancer and given just a year to live. For most of that time, he was bedbound at home. One day, a good friend visited and he took a seat by his bedside. Climbing the stairs with refreshments, I overheard Ray trying to persuade this friend about the merits of having faith. 
he wasn't having much success. I'll believe in your God when he heals you, retorted his friend. And I noted the underlying current of anger in that voice for what he perceived Ray was going through. But what if that healing only happens beyond this world, said Ray. Now his friend was silenced. Neither he nor I were open to that kind of view. And listening to his friend's challenge, I understood why he would cast out such a bargain to the universe. How many of us at moments of deep suffering for loved ones or ourselves promise similar favors in return for the healing we desperately crave? Yet Ray's attitude to God and dying had gone through such a drastic sea change. It all started one day when I was preparing some lunch and I heard him cry out urgently so I dashed upstairs, expecting the worst. But Ray looked as chuffed as if the angel Gabriel himself had just popped his head round the door and said hello. He pointed to the wall opposite the bed. Look at that, he exclaimed. Look at what, I wondered. The only thing I could see on the wall were two small intersecting shafts of light, roughly forming the shape of a cross. A trick of the light, I assumed. So I fiddled a bit with the curtains, but the outline stubbornly remained in place. Ray was entranced by this, and it puzzled me, because he was a practical, down-to-earth man, not given to flights of fancy. The fuzzy outline faded as the day wore on, but a few days later, I was summoned again with a cry of, it's back, come and see. That's lovely, darling, I said. I was still skeptical, but I was happy to indulge him because the comfort it brought him comforted me. A few days later, Ray made to my ears a very odd request. He asked me to buy a small wooden cross to place on the wall where the cross of light had appeared. So off I went to two Christian bookshops where I was amazed to find neither had a single wooden cross left in stock. I was reluctant to let Ray down so I bought some green cardboard and I crafted a simple three-dimensional cross. I thought he was going to laugh at it, but he was delighted. Next slide, please. So that ordinary makeshift cross took pride of place on the wall opposite the bed. And from then on, there were moments when I would come upstairs and pause for a moment in the doorway just observing Ray looking intently at that cross. And there was such an expression of peace on his face as he gazed upon it. One day he said to me, 
Do you think I'm going mad, love? Why? What's, what's going on? Well, I'm asking that cross questions, and it's giving me answers. Now, when I look back, I wish I'd asked him about these answers, but at the time, I thought it must be some kind of weird hallucination. What I couldn't explain was how Ray's views about Jesus, the meaning of the cross, were just being transformed. He believed that Christ was there alongside him in his suffering and was helping him to endure them. But I just couldn't reconcile the idea of a loving God with the agonies that I was forced to watch him enduring daily due to his illness. He would wake up three or four times a night screaming out in pain. We managed to get some overnight nursing support for a single night when I slept through for the first time in months. Just as well, because early the next morning, the nurse summoned a doctor urgently. Downstairs, the doctor delivered devastating news. He believed the cancer had spread. He explained that should Ray wake up from his current semi-conscious state, the pain could feel unbearable and he could do little to prevent it. His concern was that Ray was putting up such a fight he might linger in that pathetic state for up to a fortnight. I was devastated. Ray had been through so much but he hoped that when the time came, it would be quick and peaceful. I couldn't believe he would be denied that last mercy. And I experienced what I can only describe as my spirit shattering with grief and pain. I raged at God. Rushing upstairs, I sat on the end of the bed, gazing at my husband. Anger consumed me, and I jerked round, ready to confront the God represented by that darn cross on the wall. As I did so, I cried out from the depths of my being three distinct words, Oh, my God! And what I saw then shook my world. A perfect cross of light appeared right underneath the cardboard cross. It didn't have the jaggedly outline of the original cross I'd always assumed was a trick of the light. It was a sharply defined cross of shining light. And I knew there was no logical explanation. And with this vision came an all-consuming sense of peace, pervading my entire being. An assurance resounded deep in my spirit, communicating against all evidence to the contrary 
It is going to be all right. Time stopped. I couldn't say if I sat there seconds or minutes, but I knew what I was seeing. And then it had gone. But the assurance it had communicated was still there. Shortly after, Ray's condition took a sudden turn for the worse, and he passed away peacefully. All of us grieve differently. Of course, I missed him desperately, but I knew something had changed within me. But I didn't know what it meant. I went away to a Christian center for a few days' rest. And one day I was sitting in my room listening to a service being relayed from the chapel. I was standing by a window looking out over a beautiful countryside. And I heard a reader say those words from 1 John 4. Perfect love casts out fear. At that moment, it felt as if a great circle of light was moving around me from the top of my head down to my feet. And I felt a great lightness of spirit as though I'd been deep cleaned in spirit as well as body. That night, I had a life-changing dream where God revealed what he would like me to do or be, and it would begin a series of events which eventually led to my becoming a minister specializing in counseling. So what had changed in me? A change that other people noticed. People said, there's something different about your eyes. I was no longer shy. I had no fear of driving, no OCD, no depression. I could talk about my childhood for the first time without physically shaking. But I knew that my past, which those defenses had helped suppress from conscious memory, still needed processing. And that would happen when I received counseling as part of my training to become a counselor. But the biggest and the greatest change was in my internal image of God. He was no longer blind. I knew he could see me and I could see him. And it seems such a cliche to say that what I saw was pure love. I wish I had adequate words to convey this because love is such a confused, misunderstood concept at times. But it does say, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words.
So what are the spirit-taught words God has communicated to you or is waiting to communicate to you which would make that phrase, God is real, God is love, real for you? What would healing mean for you? Because it's truly horrible to be in a position where we or somebody we love needs healing and it's simply not happening. We can torture ourselves with all kinds of images of God as being uncaring or blind to our sufferings. Suffering, for whatever reason it happens, can seem senseless. Believing that God is absent and uncaring makes everything feel so much worse. And even if we previously might have held a fairly positive image of the divine, when bad stuff happens, our image can change in an instant from benevolent to sinister. One woman I read about pictured God as an angry bully. In adulthood, it kept her from leaving a violent, abusive relationship because she was afraid that if she left, she would be punished by God. Another who was a professing Christian said, I often perceive him as the demander, the great expector who's always pushing me to do more than I'm capable of doing. Another person, I feel I committed the unpardonable sin by being angry with him. When I've sometimes talked to baptismal couples and they've said, we'd like our baby baptized, but we really don't like church. I often say to them, tell me your picture of God. And when they tell me, I often say, gosh, I wouldn't want to believe in a God like that either. My healing began with the healing of my image of God. Perhaps all healing begins like that. When I married again, when my second husband, Jim, was diagnosed and then died with a brain tumor, an experience too long to go into here, but I've explored it in a book, the, tr the Treasure on the Shore, shameless book plug. Even though I had an image of God as pure love, it didn't stop me raging at God at times and desperately wanting answers. But the difference was, I knew it was okay to rage, that God could take it as part of an honest, loving relationship. And the sense of his presence with me helped me survive. Knowing a loving God is with us, suffers with us and for us, that can communicate a sense of his presence, which can bring a new perspective and strength for daily living. 
And if we believe in the message of the Bible, there's a real God out there waiting to be found. A God who urges us, seek my face, but is gracious enough to accept us misunderstanding him or distorting his image until he finds a way to reveal more of his true self to us. So can we give God a chance to heal our image of him? Slide, please. Finally, I wonder if anybody's seen up close the beautiful sculpture of David by Michelangelo. If you have, please tell me afterwards. Those who've seen the full figure describe it as breathtaking perfection, almost alive. There's just uh, an image on screen there of the head and the detail in the hand is incredible. People couldn't imagine how something that beautiful could be crafted so precisely out of a 19-foot block of stone. When Michelangelo was asked how on earth he managed it, he answered, I started with a piece of marble and I took away everything that was not David. And over three years, he just chipped away at everything he said, which was not David, until David emerged. And that can remind us of the way the Spirit of God chips away at the picture of God we hold until we get a clearer picture, a more precise form of the God we're in relationship with. So seeking the face of God, starting to recognize his true features, like somebody without sight gradually beginning to see. It's really a lifelong task. But as James Hamilton writes, not a few of us have had to overcome an unfortunate negative image of God. But by walking with God, studying his word, being supported by his church, and being guided by his spirit, I have come to an increasingly clear view of the nature and character of God. And the older I have grown, the better God has become. The older I have grown, the better God has become. And that's how I feel. But I also know there's more to come because what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived are the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. Amen.